chapter 4. We'll be in Zechariah chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. Zechariah 4, verses 6 through 10. This is the word of the Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain. And he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Oftentimes, starting something can be one of the hardest things that we can do. We have a task before us, but taking that first step, that first action can be hard. And this is true in all of our life. If you're at work, maybe you have a great project set before you and you have to take that first step. Or maybe you're looking for a job and you look at the market and it's daunting, but you have to take that first step. This is no less true at home. Maybe you're going to do a home renovation I I really desperately want to finish my basement, but this is going to entail moving my stairs and all the like, and the task is daunting, but eventually, if I'm going to do it, we have to take that first step. Sitting at home right now, I have a Lego model of London Bridge, 4,295 pieces If and when I do it, it'll be the largest set I've done. 492 more pieces than the Lego Death Star, which took me a week. It's a daunting task. But to do it, you have to take that first step. The same is true at church. You want to start a new Bible study, and you talk about it, and you do all these things. But to get it going, you have to take that first step. In ministry, in witness, it's it's a hard thing. Why is it so hard to want to take that first step? Tasks can be hard. We fear failure. We fear rejection. There are many reasons we can fail in taking that first step. But as we look at daunting things and events that we have to face, the best thing to do is to start with the small things peace I love Legos and this is a great illustration why I brought up Legos because do you know how you build a set of Legos 
piece by piece by piece. And if you've ever seen a Lego or stepped one on the middle of the night, it is a small thing. And when it's done, it's this large, clear, finished thing. We have to gradually put one foot in front of the other. As we've been going through Zechariah, we see that Israel had a momentous task before them. They were called to rebuild Jerusalem, the wall specifically, and the temple. And they look at this and they're like, this is too much. How are we going to do this? How will we rebuild our city? How will we rebuild the temple? There was much working against them. Their surrounding neighbors didn't care for them. They oppressed them. They couldn't even get their own house in order, and yet they're called to rebuild. Things at times seemed helpless. We now come to our fifth vision in our series of eight visions. And this vision will teach us, and even the other visions have taught us many great things historically, doctrinally, Christologically, and even practically. We see that they will finish the temple, that it will come to an end. It'll come to an end in the time of Zerubbabel. And this happens uh, in history. We see that Zerubbabel points to Jesus and Jesus who is building his kingdom, who now holds the plumb line. There are many doctrinal issues and great things we could talk about, but it also shows us a simple, beautiful truth. We are to start the work and we are to do it simply, one brick at a time. As we see this, as we come to our text today, I want to see three things. We're going to see grace given. We're going to see obstacles removed. And we're going to see faith that is small. Let's begin by looking at grace given. I think as we come to this text, it's a a useful task to put ourselves in the shoes of of Israel, right? They say you can't know someone until you walk a mile in their shoes. Let's consider for a moment the mindset of Israel. Israel has been cut off from God's grace. They had sinned, their fathers had sinned, and God's wrath had fallen upon them. The city of David had been destroyed. The temple had been destroyed. They've been taken into captivity, and they've been there for some 70 years. They have now returned to Israel by faith in God. They have been given hope by the prophets. Uh, several prophets are going on during this time Ezra, Nehemiah, Zechariah. They're focusing on different things. But even in spite of all the good things that are going on, they're doubting. And we should not be surprised by these doubts. They're questioning their own restoration. They're questioning their claim to God's favor. 
these are those who have been rejected. What claim do they have to the favor of God? These are those who come out of exile. And I think as we even try to identify with Israel, we can very easily identify with those who have come out of exile because aren't we all those who have come out of exile? We were those who were apart from God who have been brought into his presence. And we have great promises that have been given to us, but we live between this tension of two times, between the already and the not yet. We've been given promises, but they're not fully ours yet. In a way, we live the life of someone with multiple personalities, don't we? We know who we are. We're, we're free in Jesus Christ. We're free from sin. We're heirs of the king, right? That's what we're called. We're called heirs. We're royalty, right? And yet, what is our actual circumstance? I might say, if I'm royalty, where's the paycheck? We don't live as royalty, do we? We don't live as those who are not plagued by this world. Paul says it this way, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Our royal sonship is largely unseen in this life. And it can only be seen through the eyes of faith. We can feel like Zechariah and his people, expecting the fulfillment of great promises and yet experiencing a life that is far from glorious that is marred by sin. And at times, it can leave us hopeless. But Zechariah comes to us through this vision and says, God, God does not change. He is still the God of grace. He is still the God whose favor extend to all those who come to him. J.I. Packer says it this way, <clears throat> Nothing can alter the character of God. In the course of human life, taste and outlooks and temper may change radically. A kind, equitable man may turn bitter and crotchety. A man of goodwill may grow cynical and callous. But nothing of this sort happens to the creator. He never becomes less truthful or merciful or just or good than he used to be. The character of God today and always will be exactly what it was in the, biblical, in the Bible times. Sin will always lead to judgment. Rebellion will always bring displeasure. But God is always loving and gracious to us. And he is loving and gracious to us in all circumstances. Lamentations, an often quoted book of the Bible. I often go quote from Lamentations. I don't. That's the joke. You can laugh. Lamentations 3, 22 through 23 says this, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Are the mercies of God new to you every morning? His grace is unchanging. 
And of course, Zechariah reminds us, verse 6, we looked at last time, it's kind of our transition verse. How is this done? Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. It doesn't occur by anything we do in ourselves. It doesn't occur because our own might or our own power. It occurs because the spirit of the Lord But the reality is this, brothers and sisters, that each of us in this room either has been in exile or is in exile. Exile, in this sense, for Israel, what was it? Where was God's presence? The temple. Exile meant the removal of God's presence. If you don't know Jesus, you are in exile because you don't have his presence. So you either were in exile or you either are in exile or you were in exile. Those who now have the presence of God currently now. Grace by definition is what? Unmerited favor. You did not earn it. You're not good enough that he gave it to you. It's unmerited. He gave you favor out of his own graciousness, out of his own goodness. And that should encourage us as we struggle in our sin, as we fail in taking those tiny steps, that his grace is new to us each and every day. And so even in our sinfulness, we can turn and rest and trust in him. We can be encouraged for the task that is set before us. And so we can take that small step. We can put that brick down. But even even in this, we see obstacles, don't we? And we could list obstacles each of us well I would do this or I would do that but let me tell you what keeps me from doing these things and sometimes those excuses are the silly excuses that we make up in our mind right but oftentimes they are real tangible things that keep us from uh, working before him and here in Zechariah he says who are you O great mountain he calls them mountains In the next few verses, we're going to see that grace applied. The renewal of this grace applied. They are to renew their efforts. Who are you, O mountain? In essence, he's saying, who are you, O obstacle? We look at a mountain. If you think about the the time of, of America when we were expanding and they were putting in railroads right and there were times where we're putting in a railroad we're trying to get from a to b and what's in the middle a mountain so what did they have to do oftentimes they had to go through the mountain the mountain was an obstacle they were inhibited by the enormity of the task set before them How are we, who are beaten and oppressed, going to rebuild your temple? How are we going to do it? There was this mountain set before them. 
It was great. But what does Zechariah say? He says this. Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. A mountain becoming a plain. That which is insurmountable becoming flat and easy. If you're going to put a train through a plane, well, you just have to lay the tracks, right? It's much easier than putting a train through a mountain. There are powers that are spiritually attacking us and cutting us down. Both individually and corporately. And God tells us, press forward. As you press forward in faith, I will make the mountains a plain. It's a very graphic image. One that I think is very easy for us to understand. Could you imagine standing before the foot of a mountain? And it becoming flat. That is a very startling and yet very simple and pungent image, isn't it? The mountain being removed because God removes obstacles as we press forward in faith. God will call the mountain to account. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. For Paul, what was the mountain? His own weakness was the mountain. And in spite of his weakness, he goes on to say this, continuing 2 Corinthians. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardship, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Can you say that with Paul? That you rejoice in your weakness because in your weakness, God is made great. And through that, he makes us strong. Zerubbabel is given a great promise here. He says, you're going to build the temple. But not only are you going to build the temple, but Zerubbabel, you are going to lay the capstone. In essence, the final stone. The stone that says the building is complete. This is not some... Oh, yeah, I'm going to, you know, Abraham, you got, you got to love Abraham, right? Why? Abraham was given a promise, a promise that he was never going to see. I am going to give you a land and a people. He didn't get to see it at all. He didn't get to see the land. He didn't get to see the people. But he's saying here to Zerubbabel, look, I'm going to do this through you. And not only am I going to do it through you, you're going to see the end of it. You think that this task is so monumentous and so great And so impossible, but you are going to be the one who brings forth the last stone, making the building complete. 
Zerubbabel is shown the end from the beginning. There will come a time where it will be completed. Faith is never wasted. And it should drive us to action. God gives strength to us through faith. And he has called us to use it. Paul, once again, Philippians 2 says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He has called us to work, and it is for his good pleasure. And as we do this, what is the end goal? That you will know, that you will know that the Lord have, of hosts has sent me to you. The end goal of all of this, of grace, of, of the working, it's not for ourselves in a sense. It's not so that we can boast in ourselves. It's not so we can glorify in what we've done. All of it is done so that we may know him more. It's not we don't go work and minister in the kingdom so that we can add more numbers to our midst. We don't go labor and work in the kingdom so that we can say, look at all the souls that have come to Christ through our work. No, that's not what it's about. It's so that we can go into the kingdom and God can break us and mold us and shape us and cause us to know him more. He does not need us for evangelism. He does it. He uses us for our good that we may know him more. We must grow in knowledge and grace of the grace of our God. Of his character of his faithfulness, of his presence, of, the, of his grace. We're to know more of this each and every day. And this knowledge comes through the work, through the laboring in his kingdom. There is no task that is too big. There is no task that is too great that God cannot level every obstacle in our path. But brothers and sisters, he doesn't do this so that we may glorify in ourselves. He does this so that we may know him more, that we would praise him and worship him as God for the good things that he has done. We must allow God to work in all areas of our life so we may know him more. And we are to do this by having a faith in a sense that steps out in the small things. Verse 10 here exhorts us to start the work. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice. In essence, he's saying there's those who in Zerubbabel, in essence, if you can imagine, finally goes up to the temple and he says, all right, we're going to build this temple. And so he takes the first brick and he puts it in place. It's a small thing, isn't it? You, we see this all the time now. If someone's going to break ground, they have 
maybe on a, a big new place, they may have a ribbon and they cut the ribbon or they take the shovel, right? And they put the shovel on the ground and it's symbolic, right? We're taking this small step. And of course, after the shovel comes in, then the big trucks come in and they excavate all the dirt they need and so on and so forth. But in essence, it starts with a shovel of dirt, And this is what he's called us to do. And there's many ways in which we can do this, whether it's in our own lives or in our call to ministry. Our commitment to study God's word. We begin by beginning. It's a simple thing, right? When I was preparing this, the thing that kept coming to my head over and over again is we start from the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. Anybody know the song that it is? Do, re, mi, right? Sound of music. But we start from the beginning. That's where we're to start. It's a very simple thing, and yet it's something that can weigh on us and and become oppressive to us. It's one of these things that I struggle with in church life. As a minister in your church, as those uh, someone who is called to lead you as a church, and we, we come and we come as session, we come as deacons, and we're saying, well, we're going to do this or we're going to do that. And one of the most oppressive things in, in that ministry, I think for me at least, is I'm constantly thinking, how is this going to affect us? How is this going to affect us? We, we chose to not do Wednesday nights this summer. And as we talked about that, we went back and forth. And, and I was like, well, there's going to be on one hand, there's going to be those who say, why did we do that? We shouldn't have done that. On the other hand, there's going to be, go, be those who say, this is good that we did that because it's so uh, disheartening for me as we come here through the summer and there's very few people here because everybody is on vacation. And you sit there as a pastor and you go, well, what do we do? On one hand, we have this. and the other hand, of this. We, we can't please everyone. We can't make everyone happy. Or we, we take directions, we're going to go this way, or we're, we hope to, in the fall, uh, start community groups. And we're talking about, how, how do we do these community groups? How do we make them vibrant? And we say, well, if you do this way, someone will like this, and maybe someone else will like this. And it can bring you to the point where you think the best thing to do is just to stand here. If I step this way, I might get myself in trouble. Or if I step this way, I might get myself in trouble. So we stand. I was we're at the Actons last night eating dinner, and it reminds me of their big cat. They were talking about their big cat. I don't know why this kid came to my head. And they said they have this really big cat, and when you come into the room, it gets really still. And it pretends like you can't see it. It's like this huge cat, like larger than any cat should probably be, and it just freezes. If I, I'm that huge cat, I guess. That's what I'm saying. If I stand here really calmly, you won't notice me. But Paul tells us in Philippians 4, I can do all things. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Each of our actions has real significance for our lives and for the kingdom. There's an unknown author who said this, sow a thought and reap an action. Sow an action and reap a habit. Sow a habit and reap a lifestyle. Sow a lifestyle and reap a character. Sow a character and reap a destiny. Do you see the progression there? 
If a thought becomes habitual, it becomes an action. If an action becomes habitual, it becomes a habit. If a habit becomes habitual, that's a weird sentence, it becomes a lifestyle, and it happens over and over and over again. And this is both good and bad. If you sow bad habits and bad actions and bad thoughts, then it will, leave, it, it will end in a lifestyle that's not after God. But if we sow good habits and good things, it sows a life that's seeking God and his kingdom. We are not to despise the day of small things. When we take a step and we say, and, and let me take a step back for a second. All of this has to be done in faith. We step out in faith and we say, God, we're making a decision. We don't know if it's the right decision, but we're praying and we're resting and we're trusting in you that you would guide and strengthen us. Hudson Taylor said this. Hudson Taylor was a great missionary to China. He started, I think it was the China Inland Mission, or I think it was something like that. Probably someone else here would know it. I'm misquoting it, but he said this. A little thing is a little thing. But faithfulness is a little thing that is a big thing. Faithfulness is a little thing that is a big thing. The scale and the scope of our endeavor does not matter. The faith is what matters. The willingness to begin to step out as an act of obedience to God and say, I'm faithfully trying to work and build your kingdom. And Jesus is our example. The ultimate example of little things. A little baby born in a manger amongst the animals who for the majority of his life lived somewhat remarkably as a carpenter's son. Yet from this small beginning came the savior of the world. And as we step out in small things, even as Rubbable did, as he had the plumb line, others will rejoice in this strong example. We have to see here that we do not identify with Zerubbabel, do we? No, Zerubbabel is a type of Christ. Because Jesus now holds the plumb line. Jesus is building his kingdom. And through him we will see great things. John Calvin said this, For through the Lord begins, though, though the Lord, for though the Lord begins with little things, And as it were in weakness, yet the plummet will at length be seen in the hand of the architect for the purpose of completing the work. And as he is completing that work, we see here at the end of verse 10, that stone that was talked about earlier in chapter 3 with the seven eyes come back. That stone that represents the spirit of God is watching us in its completeness. His presence, the spirit's presence is in the whole earth. It is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts, that you can do any of these things. We are to have faith. The New Testament puts it this way. That can move mountains that can move obstacles, any in our path, 
We are not left in our own weakness. We are not abandoned to search out in our own might or our own devising. We do not have to resort to the worldly methods of building numbers. We are to undertake great things by faith in the power of Christ who builds his church through our labors. We are to come to him in faith. The lesson here is very simple. It's the lesson that the great theologians from Oregon have given us. Just do it. Just do it. Nike came out of Oregon. That's the joke there. We cannot remain passive. Not in our Christian walk. Not in our Christian work. Not in our Christian relationships. We must be active in all things. Stepping out in faith. Step by step by step. You have been given a great grace. One that is new every day. That falls upon you and says, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. A grace that you will never, ever, ever, ever be able to plummet the depths of. It is great. It is great. He loves you greatly. He has given you much grace. And he has cleared the way for you. He says, I am going before you and I will level the mountains. I come as your example. You are to follow me. And then start. Start. This is the lesson we must take to heart. Brothers and sisters, will you step out in faith? I'm going to make mistakes. You're going to make mistakes. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Ultimately, because it's not what we do, is it? It's not our actions. Sometimes I think we can get so bogged down in Do I go left or do I go right? Do we go this way or do we go that way? And we forget that it's not our choices that matter. It's the humility and the posture of our heart. Come in faith. Work in his kingdom. Work in his church. Build it. You're going to misplace bricks. In, In building Legos, inevitably, by God's graciousness, hopefully I don't go too far. But there always comes a point where I'm like, Something's not looking right. And what do I have to do? Well, I have to start taking pieces off. Find that part I didn't put on right, and then start building back again. It doesn't matter if we misplace the part. Because Jesus is greater than us. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus is greater than you. Now go work. Go work and labor in his kingdom one step at a time. Let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for Jesus. We're so thankful that he is greater than we are. And in light of that knowledge, would we labor in his kingdom, we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Please stand.